it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And welcome to this very special edition of Beer is a Conversation. As you'll hear, it's one that we could possibly rename Beer is a Discussion. As a beer writer and industry observer, there are a wide range of topics that I'd love to discuss with brewers. One of those is the point at which classic beer styles and innovation and novelty clash. Regular listeners will have heard my recent conversation with Bentspoke Brewing's Richard Watkins when he released his Flanders Red Ale Flem. There was a time, and not that long ago, when this style of beer was the epitome of what beer drinkers regarded as sour beers. With the recent trend of kettle souring and the flavour innovations that have occurred around it, and the many consumers that have discovered tart or sour flavours in beer as a result, it was interesting to see the widely varied comments on social media by drinkers who seemed surprised by this most classic of beer styles. The response was a great example of the tension that I suspect we'll always see as classic and established styles crash up against craft brewing's love for adventure. But I wanted to see what brewers thought, how they navigated consumer awareness and expectations, and also the demands that are placed on them in a world of ever-evolving styles and consumer tastes. Thanks to our friend at Pintani, I caught up with two brewers who, while both embracing creativity and new beer styles, are also highly awarded in classic beer styles as well. And I wanted to hear their thoughts about the ever-shifting sands of beer style. Please enjoy my discussion with Bent Boke Brewing's Richard Watkins and Bolter's Scotty Hargrave. Without being too simplistic, the craft beer movement as we know it today was inspired by the creation of the American Pale Ale, the hop-forward pale ale style pioneered by Sierra Nevada in the 1980s. Since then, the craft beer movement has been proud of its spirit of creativity and innovation, and the pace of innovation seems to be increasing, with new beer styles ever emerging, interpretations and reinterpretations, style mashing, and just styles evolving. This makes for an exciting time for the category and for the consumer with great interest and coverage and hopefully drawing new interest and new consumers. But what does it mean for beer and especially traditional beer styles? What pressures does the quest for novelty put on brewers and breweries? These are the questions that I've been asking for a while, especially recently when I saw much of the discussion around the release of a very traditional beer style, a barrel-aged Flanders Red by Richard Watkins from Bentspoke Brewing. Joining me to discuss this topic is Ben Spokes' Richard Watkins. Welcome aboard, Richard. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. And also another brewer with a love of classic styles who has also shown great flair in embracing the new Scotty Hargraves. Welcome, Scott. Hey, buddy. How are you? Very, very well. Well, thank you both for joining me. But, Richard, I guess um, in, in some ways you started all of this uh, in, in, in a way because uh, you did <laughs> brew phlegm. We had a great chat with you on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, since then, we've seen the reaction to it. Do you take note of the – have you seen the discussion online or have you sort of looked at some of the uh, reactions that people have had? Oh, look, I haven't been following it closely. It's not really me to just sit there and, and monitor what everyone's saying about our beers. I mean, we back ourselves to make beers that not only we want to make, 
um, but also, you know, beers that, you know, we don't put out beers that we're not happy with as brewers. So um, I, no doubt, you know, I've had some of the, the staff um, keep me up to date with what people have been saying. And I just, uh, for me, I think it, it really does um, come down to education and, and people really understanding, you know, what are the, all the different beer styles and what they all mean. I think that for, for me, that was it. It was, you know, I, I said in the introduction that the evolution of beer styles has brought a whole lot of people in and, you know, particularly a lot of the um, current trend towards, you know, fruited sours and some of the riffing on that theme has created a lot of interest, um, you know, in the some of the, the, the kettle sour styles. But when I look at a lot of the discussion about phlegm, people seem to miss the point. Either they they weren't aware of the style and they were comparing it to how it looked in the glass without knowing what to expect or they were looking at some of the you know mouth puckering kettle sours and saying that it wasn't sour enough you know hearing you say about education do you brew for the educated drinker or is it up to the drinker to educate themselves oh look we always try and educate people if we're brewing something different on what it is we're making and in this case we did as well but um I think a lot of people don't take that, don't don't look at that when they're or don't understand that or haven't seen that when they're when they're buying a beer and they've assumed. I think before they've even tasted it, they've got a you know a, a flavour profile in their head of what it's going to taste like, and when it's not what it tastes, what they think it is, they get a bit disappointed. Um, so I think you know I think um, I think it shows doing you know because the Flanders Red style is is I guess you know in that bucket of styles it's not readily done not it's not available um as much as certainly a lot of other styles so i think um you know it just shows i think where we're at with our you know industry of where the consumer at the moment is probably very aware of um you know what a what an ipa at the low end of the scale looks like and what an ipa at the high end of the scale looks like um but whether they're you know, if there are 125 beer styles, how many beer styles are in the World Beer Cup? I can't remember last time, but 125, let's just say. Of those 125, I think most consumers would probably, probably, if you actually had to ask them to list them, I, I reckon they most people would struggle to get past maybe 30 or 40. <laughs> I, I think that's so ambitious. I think there's a lot yeah, of that's, that's pretty, um, that's, that's pretty generous, I reckon. <laughs> I, I agree with a, a lot of what you're saying there, Rich. I think, um, Definitely the education piece. I think a lot of people who are particularly new to craft beer and they're getting all the bells and whistles and pretty lights overlay just about everything with the same template of um, gee whiz, you know, and 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 firecrackers and going off and all sorts of stuff without um, necessarily a, a great understanding of either complexity and, and conversely subtlety. You know, there's 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 more than just you know, being the loudest noise out there or just bashing and banging away at something that on the surface will grab the attention of someone that may not have the the depth of knowledge or the sophisticated sort of palate that, that quite often, you know, that, that as brewers we want to make these styles, you know, it's a, in, in a lot of cases that's that's it's like a renewal of, of tradition and, and uh homage to tradition, you know, because beer and brewing is obviously very, very steeped in tradition and, and, you know, just about everything I think we drink has probably been tried before in some, you know, some some way 
somewhere before. Maybe not necessarily pastry stouts or milkshake <laughs> IPAs, but... But, but lactose has been used in beers um, for, for a long yeah. time, so in, in some form I guess it has. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I guess to me that's one of the big questions or one of the things I'm very, very conscious of because uh, you know I listened to, to your answer then and on one hand beer is very, very traditional and yet a whole lot of people are coming to the category or you know, coming to beer drawn by these really exciting new beer styles and one of the things I always grapple with is, uh, you know, at what point do I become, you know, the, the fusty old camera guy um, <laughs> who, you know, refuses to let beer move on? Um, you know, what is the role of tradition and what is the role of innovation, I, I guess, is the question I ask you, Scott. Well, I think, um, you know, I think you've always, as, as brewers, I know for, for myself and what we do here, we've always got one eye on tradition. You know, I tend to you know, filter a lot of things through that prism of, of you know, a great beer, uh, great beer styles, but also, um, you know, process, et cetera, et cetera, and all those sorts of things. Having said that, it's, it's almost like if you understand, you know, if you understand the history of beer and, and tradition, like it, it does, when you're grounded in that, it does. I think it actually lets you, uh, gives you the freedom to to push the boundaries because you know. Um, I think you often have a greater feel of of understanding of balance and and like I said, balance and subtlety and drinkability. I mean, um, I don't think beer should ever be really, you know, sort of held up as too much of an artifact. It's it's you know it's liquid food for want of a better word and. I, in a lot of a lot of cases, you know, we've got to remember why beer, you know, exists in the first place, and it's it's it brings people together, and it's about you know knocking the rough edges of a tough day, and all of those sorts of things. And you know, obviously, there is always that there's that sort of balance between tradition and 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 precision, I suppose, and, and accuracy and, and repeatability and consistency. All very, very important things because if you don't have that, you know, consistency and reliability, you're probably dead in the water. Um, but at the same time, there is there is always a new hop on the horizon. You know, there's always a new piece of equipment or a or a problem that's been solved, you know, a different way, and, and you end up you know, end up in a, in a space that you weren't before. And um, you know, I think that's always for the modern brewer. That's that's the balance, and that's you've, you've got to have. Um, I always like to think that. I'm into brewing because it exercises both halves of my brain, you know, and and whether that's the creative and the technical side, there's, I guess you can also put that as there's the traditional side and then the innovative side, and you know when they when they meet, uh, you know, when they meet somewhere in the middle, that's that's when for me the, the really exciting stuff happens. But also that's how you get sustainable, you know, when you do push forward and you have new styles that are going to stick around. That's that's kind of how it happens, you know, when you look at Ken Grossman and Sierra Nevada and and, and and trying to make a you know a, basically a, an English pale ale with you know cascade hops back in 1980 or whatever and and some probably pretty ordinary brewing equipment that they <laughs> made it happen, you know, and and they were able to be innovative in in solving problems with the gear they had and got better and better and better and then as you, as you said before, Matt, suddenly you have a, a beer style that's even rich in itself and probably. Most of the other brewers on earth now a job and a career and a 
in our whole industry. Richard, how about you? Do, you? do you think there's a risk that classic styles can fall by the wayside in, in, in the mood of great experimentalism? If I speak for, for my sort of um, my sort of age in brewing, <laughs> um, and, and maybe I think that most people, as they get older in their brewing lifetime, probably respect the, um, the breweries that have trodden the path well before us a lot more. Um, I think there are some young, some younger brewers coming forward that do understand and respect those styles. But there's also a lot of younger brewers that are just flying around trying to be the next, um, create the next thing, and probably not um, thinking a lot about the path that's been trodden before by brewers for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, you've got to understand that back in the back in the day, those brewers hundreds and hundreds of year, years ago were also innovators, innovators as well. So. I think it is a delicate balance, like Scotty was saying. It's a balance between respecting those um, older styles and those older brewing methods and older sort of recipes to giving them a modern trend um, to make them appeal to the consumer. But I, I also wonder sometimes if we're trying to appeal to this consumer more and more, but maybe we should just brew what we want to brew and then educate the consumer on what it should taste like um, a, a bit more. We should maybe go down that path a little bit further than um, than, than being too consumer-driven, you know, in recipe design. And, and how do we do that, though? Because I, I guess that's what inspired this conversation, seeing very, very classic beer style that is quite obtainable in terms of um, finding information about it and other examples of it being very misunderstood in that very loud echo chamber of social media. Um, And and I guess it was also informed by some of the ill-informed discussion that followed on from some of those comments. How do you uh, see that we can broadly educate uh, consumers? Yeah, look, that is a very good question. I mean, we need to use more social media potentially um, ourselves to to drive, you know, drive more beer stories and more discussion on what styles are um, and what, you know, different beers are that we're making. I think that's one thing we have to do. I think we internally are probably looking potentially at our packaging and, and for some of these, um, you know, beer styles that aren't as popular or aren't really going to be our, you know, in our core range, shall we say, but seasonal releases and stuff, we might look at trying to maybe try and figure out a, a better way to put a bit more information out there as well so that people have maybe have a slightly better idea about what they're, you know, what they're getting themselves into when they buy some. Uh, but it is a tricky, it is a tricky slope. You don't want to end up writing an essay on the side of a can. That's not going to be helpful to anyone. <laughs> Well, is anyone going to read it? That's true. I mean, we um, that's why um, when we do um, re- re- new releases, we, uh, we we try and we try and inform people, you know, like at, at a reasonable level that um, you know what this beer is about, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was uh, you know we sort of saw that when we did Dimples, which was almost so Dimples for me, we released that beer and we just called it the West Coast IPA. But the narrative that went along with it was that's this is where, you know, a, a West Coast IPA sort of filtered through a very modern um, interpretation of where a lot of people, and particularly people that are new to craft beer, think IPAs are, are at right now. And I'm, 
you know, I, I, it seems like there's a lot of people out there whose only real experience of IPA, which they would consider any good, is you know the Neepers and Juicy Hazes or or um, you know fruit fruit additions to IPAs and that sort of thing without understanding that you had you know again where where this actually what you know what part of the tree this branch actually shot off from. And um, and we found with ours, you know, like people are going, you know, some people are going, oh, this is the best bloody West Coast IPA I've had, and other people went, no, it's not bitter enough, it doesn't have enough resin, doesn't have enough pine, it doesn't hurt me enough, and you know, it's like, well, you know, how far does that conversation go? Do we have to go and ring every person who's going to buy the beer and go, look, this is what I was trying to do. I'm really happy with it. We're really happy with it as a brewery. It's a banging beer. It is not. You know, a San Diego IPA from 1995. That wasn't the intention. It was the reimagining of beers that had that lean, dry base, with you know very new hop, um, very new hop varieties brought in uh, into the beer that I loved, and also, also you know, in the context of the 2020s, where you know IPAs almost seem to have to be now hazy and low bitterness and and soft and juicy to actually you know, be worth a damn. But you raise an interesting point there um, because, uh, and I think, actually I think it was a philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, no relation to mine, um, but once said, once you label me, you negate me. Um, you know, once you put a name on a beer style, do you negate it? Should, should um, the, the beer drinker approach it for what it is um, or should they approach it for what you've told them that it is? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a two-edged sword sometimes because when we did uh, when we released Dry Haze um, back in January, the collab that that uh, we did with Garage Project, you know, people people were very very positive about that beer, and the folks who weren't were the ones who just went, "This beer is too dry. It doesn't have enough body. Not sweet enough. Blah 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 blah." And they missed the entire point of the beer was not only they uh, you know labelled Dry Haze. Um, but it was an in, intentionally very, very, very dry beer. But what I was trying to do was, uh, and with you know Pete and Josh from, from GP, was what I was really after was can you have a, like a really, really dry beer but have it feel luscious and, and rounded enough? And that's where Sabo came in. You know? And like I'd been dreaming about making a beer like that for since the first time I sort of came in contact with Sabo, and. But there were still enough people out there who went, nah, too dry, too finish is really, really dry. It's it's is it thin? Is it thin? Is this be thin? You know, they're sort of sort of second guessing themselves and was like, Well, yeah, it's not thin, but yeah, it's as it's as dry as a fire shovel and that was the absolute intent. And I loved the result of that beer because you had these competing forces really. You had like, you know, next to almost a zero Plato finishing beer. So there's no residual sugar in it at all, but it, it has still had this sort of lush tropical coconut character to it, and I loved it. I, like I, you know, I I made the beer and I know exactly how it went together, but I I still just love drinking it and being confounded by it, you know. So, and then other people, other people are just plain confused by it. So <laughs> I guess you can't all. I don't know how far can you go in in um, you know educating people. There's there's got to be a certain amount to do yourself, I guess. And I guess, Richard, a lot of what when drinkers here are saying what a style should be, they're commenting on 
styles that have evolved internationally you know whether it's the uh the, the new england ipa or the brute ipa or you know different the, the east coast versus west coast and the the consumers are commenting on what they understand the style to be from having read about it or have or what they understand the style to be from having consumed versions that have traveled under you know potentially questionable circumstances and then they're being interpreted by australian brewers um who may have had a completely different experience with them again? Um, how legitimate are you know styles in in when when that's the approach to to um, labelling them? Yeah, look, um, I think um, you know we've got to we, we, we've got to we do got to keep respect for you know those beer styles that have been around um, for centuries. Um, we've got to, We do have to you know keep respect for the traditions that have um, you know got us to where we are today um but it i think the question for me is how do we bring these people that have just started their craft beer journey it seems like they as soon as somebody starts their craft beer journey potentially with a pale ale and then into an ipa as soon as they sort of have that ipa it's like they sort of feel like they've they've you know they've reached the top in some ways and then all these other beer styles start to come out they start to sorry taste all these other beer styles and then they start to think that they know everything about everything and then all of a sudden you know they don't because they're putting out you know sort of uninformed comments about um you know beers that they don't really know anything about um so it's a trick it's really tricky i think um because i want to i want to make beer styles like the flanders red you know more available for people to have because you know it was one of the beers that gave me one of my best beer experiences that i've ever had so for me that's about trying to get that get other people to experience um you know a similar have a similar experience with that style but i guess it's the gap that people have in their you know knowledge of, of beer styles and not exactly sure how to fill that gap and get them from an IPA to a Flanders Red or a, you know, a dry haze or something like that without, without the nose diving. Yeah, I think um, it might be a, maybe, mate, that's a symptom of the, uh, of the times we live in, you know. We, uh, we, we have these well, platforms, I guess, for want of a better word, where, um, like you say, Rich, you can be fairly new to drinking beer and you, you you get your head around one or two beer styles and then you, you sort of view everything else through that that shade of light you know like and uh unfortunately or or fortunately however you look at it i think you know there are so many platforms now that people can drink the first beer they've ever drunk in their life and get on social media or, or you know the beer rating um, websites and and let fly with what their opinion of this beer is, you know. And uh, I guess we don't have to go too far back in history before that, you know, uh, where that wasn't the case. You know, you just you didn't have an audience. Um, every man and his dog has an audience, you know, um, good, bad, or otherwise. And it's a very tricky one. I know it's partly it's played a part in, in the growth of craft beer and and its visibility and acceptance. But I guess the there's always a sting in the tail that comes with it as well, where you get um, people that are yeah, um, maybe not the um, 
as well-rounded or they're not really, uh, necessarily have the runs on the board or the um, or the expertise or you know or, or, or a, a well-trodden palate for want of another word but still um, still can basically have their say in a, in a public forum which is their right but you know quite often um, they, um, they don't really know what they're talking about but they've they've got a platform to get up on the pulpit and say what they think. Does that sort of uninformed criticism influence your approach as a brewer, Scott? Or how, how do you, in a business sense, um, no. you know, manage consumers' expectations or manage some of that online? Yeah, first and foremost for us, mate, we've got a, and it's, you know, it's pretty much identical to what Rich said. I've got to like the beer. We've got to like the beer. We've got to, we've got to, you know, we've got to, we've got to have a reason to make a beer. The, um, you'll, you know, when you look through what we do when we do a say a limited release program or the stuff I do on the uh, through the pilot, all the R and B stuff I do for the tap room, so it, there's a reason to everything. A lot of it is pure experimentation. A lot of it, you know, is is, is trialing hops and process and, and yeast strains and what happens if I do this and that and all that sort of stuff. It's it's almost never. Um, What's the stupidest beer I can make right now, or what will what will get me the highest rating on Untapped, or what's going to get people going nuts on Instagram? Um, that's never a consideration, and um, that's why we don't do 50 new releases a year. Or you know, and hats off to folks who can pull that off and do it well. But for us, you know, we the way we do things is about um, as is being measured in our approach. Like we've Obviously, we're we're at a scale too where we feel a, like a real responsibility. Like you know, we've got uh, a lot of other things to sort of manage in that space as well as like uh, expectations from customers about you know like oh don't crowd my shelf space with the new new release because I still haven't sold the one from last week or you know all those sorts of things that put <laughs> a lot of pressure not just on you as a brewer but all on all the um, you know all, on all the um, and the subsequent people involved in, in everything that you do from from your suppliers, particularly to your production and staff and packaging staff and sales staff in particular, you know. We um and then obviously uh, you know, your customers, your venue operators, the bottle shop owners, all all these folks involved in in those decisions that you make, you know. So for us it's it's very much is there a good reason to do this for you? You know, is um and if there's not, then generally we won't. You know, if it's if, it, if there's not a good enough reason to, to do stuff, I know that we were certainly weren't the first Australian brewery to do a um uh you know a, a hazy IPA. That's for sure. Because I wanted to fully get my head around it before we even attempted it, and that took a bunch of iterations on the pilot system over probably nine months or so. But we were actually being compelled to head down that track of actually releasing it properly because we'd send beers to festivals, we, we'd have it on here in the tap room and I found myself brewing uh, Hazy, which, which came out of a beer um, called Citra Palooza, like, and I brewed that over and over again and it was the people were saying, put this beer in a can so I can take it home. Or I'm in Victoria and I, I saw a keg of this at a festival, I want to be able to drink it again and again. You know? And um, I really, really love that consumer side of it when it's driven like that but at the same time again here's the double-edged sword you don't want to be the you know the the monkey on the end of the on, on the end of the organ grinder because otherwise 
every second suggestion that someone emails you or FaceTimes you, you're going to feel pressure that oh, we must, you know, we must do this beer with, um, you know, with beetroot in it now or X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. You know, and you've got to you've got to hold your ground. I think to to some point, like Rich said, you know, is tradition tradition shouldn't die out. You know, just as an example, um, um, I was part of a, a, a group um, back when I was on the technical committee in the in the IBA uh, about Australian pale ale, and, and we'd we'd sort of seen. I know I'd personally seen over a few competitions where there were different versions of what that actually meant. One was a Cooper's sort of template, and another one was a Standard wood Pacific Ale style template, depending on what competition people entered their beers in, um, you know, it could be judged one or two different ways, and you could do either really well or really bad, depending on how you went with that. Anyway, so um, what we ended up doing, um, we were actually we really wanted to preserve that Cooper's style, you know, classic Australian pale ale style. So we we sort of enshrined that and and put that together and put a modern Australian take on. Um, Australian pale ale as well, and we were, you know, we pushed that onto the um, Brewers Association in the US, and the um, the style guidelines that we came up with, they adopted that immediately. I think into the 2018 GADF, and I judged it there, and I judged I judged the Australian pale ales at, at the 2019 GADF as well, you know, and there there was a that's just a, a, a you know an example of where we actually went. Well, we actually need to keep the style, you know. Like there's still people making lots of those beers, and Cooper's still sell millions and millions of liters of beer. So how could this get written out of style guidelines for an Australian pale ale when it most definitely is, you know? Is is there a, a newer offshoot? Yep, and we recognise that as well. So um, you know, um, I guess even you know, there's there's the chance they're in competitions. And maybe that is the beauty of competitions where you get to both enshrine traditional um, beers that um, you know, have, have meant so much to so many people, but also allow the progression in, um, in styles as they evolve, you know. I guess that raises a really interesting question, and uh, you know, Richard, at what time, at what point, uh, Scott was talking about, you know, a very classic Australian pale ale style, and then also a more modern interpretation of the same style that has had great acceptance and great long, you know, longevity over, admittedly, ten years. At what point does a newly emerged style become, you know, deserve to be codified as a new beer style? Well, I guess, yeah, with Scott's talking about that um, sort of subset of this Australian parlour, I think it's just simply by, um, you know, first of all, some of the ingredients had, had new ingredients had become available, which were still, you know, still technically obviously grown in Australia. So I think that obviously we're talking about the hops here, specifically with the Galaxy hop. And that obviously generated a lot of different um, types of Australian parlour and a lot of brewers got into that, and the vo- literally the volume of entries into beer competitions outweighed the more traditional Australian pale ale style. So it was, you know, it was a real no-brainer to actually. You know, it took a, you know, I, I remember it took a fair while to get some competition to actually change as well. Um, even though every year we had trouble judging the pale ale category because these beers were just, you know, not sitting where the style definition said they should and all of a sudden then you're getting, um, you know, you're getting some of that older brigade of judges simply not rewarding really good beers. 
Um, but, you know, it took a while to get that, that change. But, I mean, I don't think, I think, so I think, you know, the, the, to get a style or create another subset of a style is, is going to come down to the volume of those beers being brewed and, and, um, and whether they, you know, whether it's worthy of it. I mean, with competitions and that's when styles generally get ch- get changed is when beers get entered into competitions and you get the volume of different, you know, beers that that style subsets created for the, you know, for the right reasons because ultimately good beers aren't getting rewarded. Um, I think the Gazer style is the, probably another one that really does need a, a little bit of work on it because I really don't think many people are brewing, you know, traditional Gazers, um, but I'm not saying they're bad beers. I think there's a lot of good Gazer styles out there or cl- beers that are close to a Gazer that aren't traditionally what you call a traditional Gazer. Um, I know they have a fruited uh, section now, but it is different, the souring technique to... Um, in traditional gazes through to more modern gazes. So that's probably another one that's, you know, that I can just think of off the top of my head that, that is, is a style that probably needs, a, you know, another subset. I think, it's, yeah, so it comes down to the volume of those beers being entered into the competitions, really. Yeah, I agree with that, Rich, because I know when um, a couple of years back, the, um, you know, the, the World Beer Cup and the GABF and the Brewers Association, um, they were still not fully convinced about New England IPAs, hazy IPAs, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they were like, the view was, you know, are these beers trends or are they actually new styles? And then um, and then once they actually made the decision to say, for instance, in the GABF, um, have a, you know, hazy, juicy pale ale, hazy, juicy IPA, hazy, juicy double IPA, the, the hazy, juicy IPA category quickly became pretty much the most entered uh, uh, category, you know, in, in that competition and like it was huge and so you've got the volume there because you've got so many brewers making those beers and engaged in them and, and that's only happening because there's an awful lot of the public out there that are uh, similarly impressed with those beers and looking for them, you know, so um, totally agree there. You cross a line where there's just so much volume but also like it's just a sign of the times the the demand is out there and it's a wave you know it's a tide you're not going to stop so um you know it should then probably be recognized and that's that's a, a really interesting question i, I was, saw a recent discussion where phil uh, murowski who wrote you know the very influential book uh, farmhouse ales that you know got a lot of people brewing uh you know farmhouse ales uh, or gave them techniques to do it said that he would write it very differently now to focus more on the american one and i, I guess this is p- picking up on what richard was saying that a lot of the beers that are called a style now aren't really being brewed to the style that they purport to be um and yet because so many new consumers are discovering it as the style that is brewed now, that by default becomes the style. Where do you draw the line, or you know, what do, do, do brewers have the responsibility then to call it something different? Good question. Um, well, you could say that I reckon about like if you look at it really in, in enough depth, when you look at sort of hazy, juicy IPAs, and you know, at the end of the day, are they IPAs or are they just hazy, juicy pale ales? You know that that might be or strong pale ales, hazy, juicy, strong pale ales. You know, like when you when you actually what's look a black at it, India pale ale? How can you have exactly. a black India? Pale ale? <laughs> but 
then again, consumers knew what it was. Um, so Exactly. And I know I've, I've sort of mentioned this um, before somewhere. It's almost like that, that moniker, IPA, you put those three letters on a beer now. And, and a lot of people, I think, globally, and particularly people that are new to craft beer, they see IPA and they, they actually interchange that with that's what craft beer means, you know, mm-hmm. that... That's that's not big beer. That's not industrial lager. IPA. So that must mean it's craft beer. That must mean, uh, you know, that it's better for me. There's more care involved. There's a, you know, there's a, a smaller brewer or a small family involved in it. Or um, I, I think very much the IPA has become that that sort of overriding badge for, you know, craft beer or more more. Um, you know that that more global village feel about it this is a bit more of a vexed issue then with so many brewers brewing beers one off you know as as these styles come out you know we, we saw suddenly uh, there was a point about 18 months ago where everyone was brewing a brute ipa and many of them only ever brewed one um and they did it from what they understood the style to be um and some of the beers that are being done under that style are having ingredients thrown in that the the brewers have never used before they're brewing them once they're very very bold flavors and at least you know a lot of them to my palate um, aren't very good in 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 a technical sense and then you see a lot of photos of um, beers posted to social media that just have things hanging in suspension in in the beer or (laughs) um, things sitting on top of them that clearly aren't meant to be there or apparently aren't meant to be there. Um, is, is that problematic? I mean, you do, you do have a lot of consumers that that's their first introduction to craft beer. Craft beer is meant to be these bold flavours. And, you know, there's you, you see them asking questions where it's almost like, I know that this isn't really meant to be there, but is it meant to be there? Because I don't know. You know, is, is that damaging for craft beer? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, any, anything where people talk negatively about craft beer is damaging for craft beer. Um, it's very hard though, isn't it? You know, like you've got brewed IPA, it wasn't a it wasn't it didn't didn't meet the, the hazy expectation or the expectation that Hazy had brought to it. Um, but um, I think um, it comes back to what we said earlier and that is just this whole education piece of trying to inform people what good beer is. I think also a lot of people have had um, probably accepted quite poor, um, you know, poor beers from breweries as well. Even though they're not totally undrinkable, they're just not, they're not flashy, they're not tight, you know, they're not really super clean. There's certainly um, a lot of beers out there that sort of fit that. Um, And I think people get used to going, oh, yeah, that's okay. Um, And I think, but people don't know what, what, you know, what excellence is. But when you've got these styles that are constantly changing, how do you tell them how it's meant to taste? Is the is the other point to that? Yeah, well, I guess there's. I suppose styles evolve for sure because ingredients evolve. The average consumer probably doesn't know a lot about styles as well. They just know what you know, what it um, you know, what it, what a good aroma is, what a you know, what they like to taste, what they like to see on the finish, um, and if. You know, if, if it's if you're saying it's a red ale or a red something, then they'll expect it to be red. I don't think a lot of people go and look up, you know, all the um, beer style definitions and sit there and go, is this 
This beer is supposed to be between 30 and 50 <laughs> IBU. I think this beer is only 20 IBU. I don't know how many people would, would do that, but maybe that's, you know, I don't think that's sort of in the spirit of craft beer, though, too, is that everyone sits there and buys sex. Um, you know, the beer right back to the beer sort of stats. I think it's it ultimately it comes down to people enjoying what they drink and, and um, respecting, I suppose, some of the process that's gone into making that beer and, and giving that beer that, that great taste that they're, you know, they're, they're talking about. I think people, you know, I like to think that, that people generally will recognise whether a beer is well made, you know, whether there is care taken in the beer, whether it's consistent, whether it's, um, you know, whether it meets our expectations. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't, and sometimes it's because a, a beer might over-deliver as much as it might under-deliver. But um, I think in general people, you know, they, they obviously trust their own palates and, and that's what guides them most. Does this taste good? Would I drink it again? You know, will I would I take it to the barbecue and tell my mates about it? Um, yeah, you know, will I let my brother-in-law drink it at the Christmas um, function, you know, uh, or would I hide it from him? You know, is it that good that I'm going to keep it in a separate fridge? You know, that's people sort of who aren't, uh, you know, sophisticated for, for want of a better word, they just, just rely on their own instincts and that's what you know, that's what your sensory analysis is all about. It's ultimately there as a, a you know, evolutionary uh, survival uh, instinct to keep you alive from, from eating and drinking things that are going to kill you or, or harm you. So it's always going to be based in that and I think that... Um, that that that's what it is with folks, you know. They they generally just think, well, do I like it or not? And and a lot of people don't overthink um, beer, and that's why that can be the beauty of it. You can have, you know, maybe brewed IPAs just didn't deliver enough, you know. From my when I first saw the emergence of them, I expected to see beers that were star bright and you know effervescent and and just really almost champagne like in their finish and and you know, just a, uh, you know, in a refinement. And I remember That's Rich, right, when you and I were in San Francisco a little while back, um, was it last year or whatever, we were, we went hunting around San Francisco looking at fruit IPAs and that's where they'd emerged from. And, you know, we've seen some incredibly hazy, dull, weirdo-looking beers that were supposedly brewed IPAs. And, and coming out of their hometown, it was almost like it got killed off before it started because no one could agree on what they actually were. You know? And um, I loved them. Like I, um, you know, I got right into um, making those beers here. Like we've our tap room, we've had three, four um, different ones come through over the last eighteen months in the tap room. You know, and um, and it was, you know, that the idea behind the philosophy behind the brewed IPA was a big part of what dry haze was. But, you know, um, I guess if, if no one can agree on what they actually are, then the people will decide and go bugger it, you know. They'll turn their back on a lot of them. Well, that, that's true. But then again, uh, and bringing it back to the classic styles, uh, you know, as you know, I was heartbroken when you discontinued your Pilsner, which is a very, you know, clearly defined style. Um, yep. And, you know, that everyone pretty much agrees on. And uh, people have moved on from, from that style as well. So what is the pressure um, you have uh, at Bolter and also at Bentspoke brewed beers that are, um, 
you know, on on the cutting edge of of styles, but then you both you know have traditions brewing, you know, very very classical beer styles. How do you decide what stays in the core range? Um, and and in raising that, I think you've both said uh, earlier on in the interview. You know, you need to stick to your guns a little bit, not be affected by the market. But uh, I'm, I'm sure I could find examples where both of you have uh, discontinued great styles um, by keeping an eye on the market because you're in business. Yeah, well, for us, like um, with the pills, you know, it obviously had had fans like yourself, and um, it just it just didn't. It was taking up space, I suppose, in our brewing roster and also shelf space, and it wasn't moving as quick as our other beers and whether you like it or not, like you said, Matt, it's a business. So you do have to have at least some, you know, you do have to have, you know, some recognition of that and understanding of it that, you know, like, you know, cause that's what's, that's what's happened you know, a couple of times with us. It's like, well, the numbers just don't stack up and, you know, do I want to kill off one of my beers? No, cause I wouldn't have sort of come up with it in the first place. But when you look at, you know, when you look at it, sometimes you go, well, you know what, Folks aren't really sort of taken to that um, in this format. Well, let's let's just take it out of the range and maybe there's another spot in there, you know, and, and that's what happens. And I think that's just a natural evolution of, of – uh, it's almost like a – is it a – what do you call it? A, a, a cycling team, you know. And you, there's always one guy in the front and then there's, you know, supported by three or four other guys or girls and other riders and – and they sort of take front turns of being at the lead and then eventually some of them drop off, you know, and, and you've, you've done your bit to support the whole team, if you want, rather than just rather than just the, the rider who's going to go over the line first. But, um, you know, for us with the beer like the Pilsner, there's a lot of folks like yourself who said, gee, I love that beer. And it's like, well, you didn't drink enough when we were making it. <laughs> But what this does, mate, and I'm, I'm, I'm adamant about this, you'll see over the next sort of 12 months for us, it's, it's now, it's almost actually given us more freedom with that style, with Pilsner's, to explore it more and to actually, you know, introduce it as a seasonal run or, a, you know, a limited a release run and, and stuff and not just do one, but do a bunch of them. And I'm, I'm like really, really excited about that and not just Pilsner's, but that whole, you know, lager category and, you know, and, and you can extrapolate that out to whether it's sour beers or barrel aged beers or or you know, Gertz's like Rich was talking about or or you know, some some of the more um, you know, older, more esoteric, you know, European styles as well. Like there's no reason not to to be able to, to bring that that stuff in and, you know, back to the fore. Um, and for us it makes sense to do it in that sort of format because we might actually be able to shine a light on it for our fans and they'll go they might actually take notice of a pilsner when it's a limited release whereas uh you know where it's where, where it's all day every day people are probably going to push it out of the way to get to the hops you know? that's just part and parcel i suppose of getting to know your audience and 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 moving forward with them and reacting with them and you know, reacting to them and leading them as well. You know, I think all of those things are really important. You've got to, you've got to listen to your audience, but you've also, I think, uh, you know, as, as brewers, you have that responsibility to say, well, I've earned your trust now. Just, just come with me for a minute. Like, just hold my hand. I want to show you, I want to show you what's through this door. You know, and that's, that's the great opportunity we have. When it goes the other way and, um, you know, and you're, 
you've got people, uh, you know, uh, out there going, you know, jump monkey, jump, you know, um, do this today, do that tomorrow, do this next week, you know, and if you if you get yourself on that treadmill, I don't know how easy it is to get off, you know, and then eventually maybe those folks settle down and realise they can't afford to buy, you know, 15 and $20 cans of beer all the time because now they've got a mortgage and a family. Sooner or later, those folks settle back to quality and, and stuff that's going to, um, you know, that's consistent and reliable and, and that they can depend upon. Richard, it sounds like it's a case of uh, be disciplined in your vision, but realistic about the market? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, lager's a hard one. Um, I think the problem with lager is that good lagers do, you know, they take, like Scotty said, a lot of time, um, a lot of space in your brewery, but, you know, they don't, they don't, they still cost a decent amount to make as well. And unfortunately, the consumer sits lager with, you know, mainstream beers that are obviously a lot cheaper as well. So it's harder to get traction because price does play a part in it. Um, and I think, yeah, well, that, that was a part of the reason we, we did the, um, you know, uh, the lower, sort of lower end of the spectrum range for our Flanders was to try and keep keep the price down at the same time trying to get more people um, you know a chance to try and try a style that they maybe wouldn't once try from a from a Australian brewer unless they've that's one of their local breweries um, um, has you know has, has done one. I don't I don't know but I'm probably wrong here but I don't know how many national releases of a Flanders Red Ale we've done, we've seen in Australia but I, I can't think of another one in terms of a national release. Certainly People have released them. Um, I think Stone and Wood, oh, not Stone and Wood, you know, um, Forest but, for the Trees did one towards the end of last year, but it was a very limited national release if it was a national release. Well, there you go. There's not, there wouldn't be too many. So, I mean, mm. trying to get people into trying something different and experience what different flavours of beer. And I think for me also, like, we just, I don't want to be hop-saturated. Um, I don't want beer to be become a hop-saturated thing. It is the thing at the moment. Everyone wants some really hoppy beers. And look, I... I love my really hoppy beers. You know, we most of our beers are, you know, hop-driven beers. But I don't want people to forget that um, beers can also be yeast-driven, or you know, can be can be malt-driven. They don't have to be hop-driven. And I think if we be careful, we don't get too far. We'll get any further down the hop path um, because then we're going to have a generation of drinkers that will probably find it hard to get out of that hop path. So one last question for you, Richard. Are there any emerging styles or styles that have even been resurrected that are really exciting you at the moment that you, uh, you know, are looking forward to brewing or you just sort of think that uh, it's an exciting development? Um, good question. Good question. Um, I like, yeah, like Scotty said earlier, it took him a long time to come up with the hazy. Um, we're still tinkering with that. That's something that, still working on and whether we will do one or we won't do one. Um, I think Belgian ales in, in, in total, like all, all Belgian style ales, are. I think a lot of the brew pubs and certainly smaller breweries are starting to have a Belgian ale in part of their repertoire. We did a Belgian blonde ale as a collaboration with um, Malt Shovel this year and that sold really well. Um, Admittedly, we didn't have a lot of time to sell it because COVID sort of started after we released it, but um, it did go pretty well. We haven't got a hell of a lot of it left, to be honest. 
So that that was pretty pleasing to see a, a Belgian style go pretty well. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully some brewers are looking at some of the history of beer and going back and, you know, obviously Belgium having that massive amount of history and, and influence in, in beer styles. It'd be great to see more Belgian style ales coming out. And I'd, I'd be keen to, to look at doing more of those and that's what we've sort of got a bit of a plan to try and do more of those. Um, certainly we're working hard on our um, barrel program to try and get more of those type of beers um, more readily available and can for people to try as well. And I think, um, you know, there's only a handful of people in Australia that have sort of really embraced that and, you know, investing in, in barrel-aged beer because it is an investment. You're putting beer in a barrel and it's not like three weeks later you're, you're pulling it out and with a nice, you know, hot barami, you're sitting it there for 12 months and you've really got to look after it and, um, I guess, respect it and understand it to... to want to invest in it but that's something that we're we're looking at trying to do more of um because i feel like that's um you know i mean i guess it's probably i'm probably being pretty selfish here it's there's certainly beers that i really like to drink, so um you know, i want to brew those beers but um i think that you know i do think people are like we've gone through the goes in the sort of kettle sour phase and i think people are looking for that next stage of you know, um, mixed um, culture fermentation. And obviously we've got a few brewers um, in Australia doing it really well. Um, but I think still think there's room for a bit more of that. Oh, it's certainly news that uh, it excites me. I'd, one of the things I love is a Belgian beer, but particularly when I can get a local interpretation of it so it doesn't have to travel. How about you, Scotty? What are your thoughts about um, exciting, emerging, or you know, rediscovered traditional styles? I do. <laughs> I do hold that eternal flame for lagers um, from, you know, right across the board, whether it's a, you know, Sparks beer, whether it's Pilsner, um, you know, whether it's a Maybach. Um, there's that side. I, I do wonder eventually, um, you know, sort of a, a lot like Rich said about the whole hop thing, you know. Um, you know, hops are going to be around, uh, you know, as the a dominant force, I think, for the foreseeable future because they are, you know, I love them too. Like they're just, I'm just enthralled by it all. And there's, they're such, you know, it's such a sexy um, proposition, hoppy beer. You know, um, I agree. If it, if it goes, if it just gets more and more extreme, you see an awful lot of wastage and an awful lot of beers that have become astringent, overhopped, and people think that's the new norm, where you know you, you can potentially make a lot of. Um, you know, low-yielding, very expensive beers that aren't very good and, and quite problematic, but but just because you kept pushing and pushing and pushing, that's potentially where it goes to. But I like to think that brewers, as they uh, you know, as they as they get more experience and get better and get runs on the board, and, um, you know, start to see a change in perspective. And you know, um, most really, really good brewers that I know, including Rich, you know, um, it's one of the best. He understands subtlety and balance, and and um, and you know the interplay and ingredients, and and you know those sorts of characters. So for me, even even things like you know trying to to have you know really expressive, great tasting beers that you know that are you know a, a little lower in alcohol. You know, the whole craft beer thing in a lot of ways has been driven by I don't know if it's the right word, excess, you know, whether there's like massive hot bills and 
um, and, and very big alcohol as well. But I think there's a lot of room to show people what a, you know, what a 4% or 4.5% really well-made, really expressive beer can be, you know. Saison's, you know, weren't traditionally 6 and 7 percenters. They were, in a lot of cases, you know, table beers for farmhands to, to keep you hydrated and, and stop you ending up with diarrhoea from bad well water back in the day, you know. And it's like, wow, there's, there's so much room there because, there's, you know, you've got a whole generation coming through of people who... Uh, who seem to be a little bit more health conscious and, and more worried about, you know, uh, how many calories a beer might contain or all those sorts of things, you know. So there's always, um, you know, let alone the seltzers and all the other stuff. So you know, there's there's always there's always things that are pushing up against beer pretty hard. So, you know, I guess that 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 desire, you know, for where I stand is just there's so much for me. I just feel like. I'm, I'm just a dumb brewer. There's four main ingredients in beer, and I don't, I don't know that I've actually figured them out properly yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of why I don't throw too many turnips in my beers because I, I don't know how to do that. But um, you know, so it's, I think there's endless reinvention in beer at the end of the day, and yeah, uh, for, for me, it'll always be about one eye on on tradition and and you know and another eye on the future because of not just new ingredients and process but also what 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 excites people you know what gets people into beer and as we go along you know if we can bring our audience with us um that hopefully means better beer all around for for everybody but mate like i yeah you'll see more pilsner from us at some point <laughs> well i do at least I'm happy with the outcome of this conversation. I'm going to see more Pilsners from Bolter and more Belgians from uh, Benspoke. I'd, I, I don't know how many answers we've provided, but we've certainly provided a, a terrific conversation and it's a conversation that can continue in pubs around the country, I hope, as uh, people talk about that. So, uh, Scott Hargraves, Richard Watkins, thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Matt. And yeah, thanks, Scotty. Um, Matt, it's really good to have these conversations and try and... Um, you know, get them out there so that people do maybe think about things a little differently when they next go and buy a new beer or buy a type of beer that they haven't had before. So thanks for you for, for you know, promoting this and getting it out there a bit further. Oh, pleasure. And I was going to add or comment about it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that. Thanks, thanks Matt. <laughs> hey, you know what? For, as one parting word, I reckon that maybe some of the punters out there could use when they're um, looking at beers like... Um, Rich's flam and, and beers like that is context. You know, does how does this beer make you feel in context? Excellent advice. Yeah. Good on you guys. Thanks so much. And thanks very much to Bent Spokes, Richard Watkins and Bolter's Scotty Hargraves for joining me on what I think you'll agree was a fascinating and insightful discussion. And we do thank our friends at Bintani for making this beer as a discussion possible. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au.